You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. We are back to the book of Judges today. A number of you in recent weeks have said, when are we getting back to the book of Judges? And uh, boy, what a joy to serve in a place where people want to study the book of Judges because uh, it, is, it is a different book. And we're heading, starting today, into dark chapters. Uh, there'll be a few bright moments along the way, but uh, at Grace Church, at least in the, in the study this summer, it won't be uh, the summer of love, but the Summer of darkness, actually. Uh, but each Sunday, we will, the light of Christ shines all the more brightly in the darkness. And it's sometimes when we see uh, the, the really brokenness of, of humanity and the sinfulness in our world that we see our need for Christ and we see the beauty of Jesus all the more clearly. So it won't really be the summer of darkness. It'll be the summer of light, but, uh, but there'll but he'll shine in the darkness, that's for sure. So uh, today we're going back to the book of Judges, and the book of Judges covers a period in Israel's history between God bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, and then uh, bringing them into the land that he had promised Abram, Abraham, and uh, then they're sort of settling in that land. So this is the time when they're sort of settling, and the whole book is really a tragedy. It's a tragedy of a people not living up to their calling. It's a tragedy of people living well below their purpose because they were brought into the promised land to live by God's law, to build a righteous and a just society, so that they honored God who covenanted with them, made them his people, so that they honored God, but also so that they were a light to the nations around them. But what happens is they compromise. And rather than becoming distinct from the Canaanites, the people around them, uh, who were really of a vile sort of of, uh, murderous sort of evil people, Uh, Rather than be different from them so that they could show the light of God, they act just like them. As a matter of fact, they worship the gods of the Canaanites so frequently. And what happens is God sort of comes in and raises up a leader to to get them out of the problems they're in. So they would worship idols, uh, enemy nations would come in, and God would free them. So we've looked at this cycle. We'll show you on the screen here. We've looked at this cycle because this cycle uh, happens throughout the book. (coughs) Israel serves the Lord. Then Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Then they're oppressed, so after they worship idols, then God brings in an outside nation to enslave them or defeat them or uh, harm them in some way uh, so that they will see their need for God. It's a loving act of discipline. So then they cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge, which is not a a man or a woman in black robes in a courtroom, uh, but it is a, a sort of a deliverer, a rescue, usually some kind of a military leader that the book calls Judges. And so uh, God raises up a judge. The judge delivers Israel by God's power, defeats their enemy. They have freedom. They celebrate. They worship the Lord again. And then the cycle starts all over. And so we've seen this happen repeated times. And the pattern works this way, that it's, it's a downward spiral. So each turn of the wheel of the cycle lowers it. 
So it's like a corkscrew. It's going down and down into darker and darker section. And the section that we're reading today doesn't even follow the pattern. Actually, much of the rest of the book doesn't follow this pattern. Because now we are down at such a dark place that the cycle isn't even in the section we're looking at today. Now, it will appear some, but not in the passages we are looking at today. So the last judge we looked at before our break uh, for another study was the judge Gideon. And Gideon had uh, freed the people from the Midianites. And uh, now something very different is going to happen with his son, Abimelech. Uh, The cycle is clearly going down, down into a dark place with his son, Abimelech. So we're going to start in chapter 8. Mostly we're going to be in chapter uh, 9 today. Uh, And chapter 9, if you've looked ahead, uh, has 57 verses. So there's going to be several passages <coughs> from here on out in Judges where I'm going to summarize sections and read sections. I think throughout the book we've read all the verses, but uh, some of the sections are going to be significant now, so I'm going to summarize it part. But let's get the background of this passage. We'll walk through the passage, and then we'll see what we can learn from it. So uh, 8.33, we get the background of this passage. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel uh, turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, another name for Gideon. They did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. So in the book of Judges, following other gods, worshiping idols is, uh, is analogous to prostitution. And so this is why it says they whore after other gods. They whore after the, the Baals. The Baals are gods. The Baal is a god of fertility. So he's the god of the storm that brings water and gives, makes fertile uh, crops in Canaan. Uh, he is the God that get, makes your animals, your, your, your uh, oxen, whoever works on your farm, the animals that work on your farm, makes them reproduce so that they can uh, have, uh, you, so you can have a- animals to work in your field. They believe that. And they believe that he gave offspring to people, that God gave babies, uh, that Baal gave babies uh, to people. So they worshiped Baal, the Canaanites did. Well, they have done the same thing. So God brought them out of Egypt. God worked miraculously, but once they get in Canaan, they're looking around them and going, wow, this looks like a good option for fertility. And so they began to worship the Baals. But this is a different name. I don't believe we've encountered this name so far in the book. Baal Berith. Baal Berith literally means Baal of the covenant. So now they have rejected, forgotten about their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and they have made a covenant. They've entered into a solemn agreement with Baal, Baal Barith, Baal of the covenant. They've also, the passage says, verse 35 said, they have forgotten about what all Gideon did for them. Gideon served them. He had his faults for sure, but he served them, and they have forgotten that Gideon freed them, and they are about to decimate his family, we're going to see. And what's going to happen is Israel, in this passage, is going to act as their own worst enemy. It's not the Midianites they're fighting in chapter 9. It's not the Moabites they're fighting. It's themselves. 
And we find that in Gideon's son, Abimelech. So there's really two things, Abimelech's life's in two sections. Abimelech's rise, we'll start there, and then Abimelech's demise, his rise and demise. So here is his rise, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and, at, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So Gideon, Jeroboam, same person, Gideon had 70 sons. And what we learn is that he raised all of these sons in chapter 8, we found out. He raised them in Ophrah, that's where he lived. But he had a concubine a woman that he just slept with in Shechem, and she had a son named Abimelech. So he had one son via concubine in Shechem. The rest were in Ophrah. So that's where this guy comes from, Abimelech. And so he's the only son uh, who lives in Shechem. He goes to his mom and says, hey, why don't you pull everybody together and let them know, hey, there's 70 sons of uh, Gideon, And wouldn't it be less chaotic if only one ruled instead of how can 70 people lead us? And and by the way, uh, I'm a son too, and I'm related to you in Shechem. I'm the only one related to the Shechemites. The rest of them live over there in Ophrah, all Israelites, but they live over there. So they say, yeah, let's follow him. Verse 3 says, let's follow this guy. He is our brother. Let's put our lot in with him. So what they do is they take money. There's actually a house of Baalbereth, so they have a temple to this false god. The Israelites are worshiping in this false temple, and they take some of the offering money, and they say, give it, give it to Abimelech and say, you know, go do your thing. And so he hires what the Bible says are uh, reckless, worthless and reckless fellows. Worthless. He hires these guys. Well, what is a worthless and reckless fellow? It's the kind of mercenary that will commit murder for a paycheck. And so they come over and they kill all 70 of Gideon's son. They kill him on a stone. They kill them all. He comes back and the people of Shechem say, this is great what you have done. Uh, Kill your 70 brothers. And uh, they anoint him and say, you are our king. Now, one brother escaped, Jotham, and we'll meet him in a second. So this is an absolutely new low in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, God raises up a deliverer. But here, Abimelech, this is just a naked power grab. He is just going and through murder, making himself the leader. And Shechem anoints this evil man as their king. It's the first time we've met a king. Uh, They've never had a king. This is the first time anybody's been a 
king. And, and why is that? Well, because all the people of Canaan have a king. And so now we're just not only going to worship the gods, we're not only going to set up a house to covenant Baal, Baal of the covenant. Uh, we're not only going to take Baal of the covenant's offering money and fund it to murder people, uh, but we're going to do what the Canaanites do. They have a king. Yahweh uh, is our king, but he's not enough. And so we're going to have a another king. This is what someone has called the canonization of Israel, the worldliness of God's people chasing the ways of the world around them. This is, this is a very dark time. The setting also reminds us how dark this is. This all happens in Shechem. Now the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, is all about places and things that happen in places and the significance of locations. What's the significance of Shechem? Shechem is the place that God appeared to Abraham and said, this is the land I'm going to give you. This is the promised land. And Abraham built the first altar in the promised land to God there in Shechem. Shechem is the spot hundreds of years later after Joshua led the conquest and the people actually saw the promise fulfilled and they came into the Holy Land. Shechem is the first place they worship the Lord. It's where God promised I'm giving you this land. It's where the people worshiped and said, thank you for this land. And now it's the place, uh, and now it's the place where, uh, well, we have a king who has murdered his brothers, where we have people worshiping not God who gave them the land, but a false god, Baal of the covenant. There's deep history at this spot, and so it just shows us how far down God's people have gone. Shechem is a legacy location in the Old Testament, but it's tarnished with this behavior and this worship of a false god. See, the threat here, it's not the, it's not the Midianites. The threat's not the Moabites. That's what's happened in Judges. The threat is Israel itself against itself. Well, the next section, I'm just going to summarize verses 7 through 21 for you. This guy, the brother, the, the brother who lived, his name is Jotham. So what Jotham does is he goes up on Mount Gerizim and he delivers a message. He gets the leaders of Shechem. He says, I've got a message for you. And he tells a fable. And uh, he says, here's what happened. All the trees wanted a king. And so they went, uh, you know, they went first of all to the olive tree. Uh, and the olive tree said he didn't want any part of it. Then they went to the fig tree, and the fig tree said he didn't want any part of it. Then they went to the vine, and he didn't want any part of it. Well, these are all uh, uh, fruitful trees that provide produce in Israel. So the picture is these are valuable. And then the trees went to the bramble. The bramble is the thorn bush that's good for nothing, easily catches on fire, is good for nothing. And the thorn bush agrees, I will rule over you and be your king. So Jotham says, uh, obviously that's a picture of Abimelech, the bramble king. And so he's, Jotham says to him, look, everybody, if you have treated my family well, if you have treated Gideon's sons well, I think we know they didn't, if you have treated them well, then may you rejoice in King Abimelech. But if you haven't, and this is what he says in verse 20. But if not, if you've not treated my family well, let fire come out from Abimelech 
verse 20, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away, I guess so, and fled, and went to Beer, a location, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Some of you say, man, this is dark. There's parts of, there's parts of this book you're going to need a beer, I tell you. There's parts that are really, really dark. So this is what he says. Look, here's the deal. If you have acted wrongly, obviously they've had killed the 70 brothers. If you've acted wrongly, then he puts a curse on them. And he says, may the fire of Abimelech, thorn bushes catch on fire. May the fire of Abimelech burn the men of Shechem, the people of Shechem. And may the fire from Shechem go back and burn Abimelech. May there be destruction. And that that parable or that fable, that's going to drive the rest of the book. Now we get to Abimelech's demise. There is trouble brewing. Verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along that way and it was told to Abimelech. Okay, so for three years, everything's great. We get the fable of the trees. You've got King Bramble. Everything's great for three years. After three years, this is a curious statement, isn't it? God sends an evil spirit. Now, the Bible makes clear God is never responsible for evil. Uh, God is not evil. He's completely pure and righteous in every way. The spirit is, this, this particular spirit is evil in and of itself. And he sends the spirit, we read here, that Abimelech and Shechem, well, that they may go at each other, basically, is what happens in the verses we just read. So he sends a spirit that is evil on its own to an evil man, Abimelech, who acts freely, to evil people, Shechem, who act freely, and it's on. They are at each other. So while we fully don't know what is this evil spirit, who is it, how does God use it, we don't know that. We do know God is not responsible for evil. We do know that each of these people we've already read are quite evil on their own. But he did cause this spirit ultimately to serve his purposes. What are his purposes? He's going to punish evil men for their evil that they have done. It said in the verse we just read that he's doing this because of the blood shed for the seventy brothers. Because of Abimelech's bloodshed and Shechem's support of it, God is now going to bring judgment. And so the first thing that happens for them to go at each other is that Shechem sets these gangs up on the road. And it says they rob anybody that comes by. So now all of a sudden in Shechem, it's not safe to travel. Why do they do that? Because that is an act against Abimelech. He's the king. And if he can't keep the land safe, that stirs uh, distrust that stirs, you know, people that are discontent with his rulership, his leadership. So they, they began to uh, sort of sabotage his rule by robbing people in the land. Next, I'm going to read verse 26, and then I'm going to summarize from there. So a, a section from there. So a guy named Gael, and Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. 
So they start robbing people, and all of a sudden, now the land is open to somebody new. Oh, well, Gale has come to town now, and we like that guy. Shechem puts confidence in Gael. So here's what Gael does. He says, let's have a big harvest. So they have a big grape harvest. And what comes from a grape harvest? Wine. And so they have a big party down at the temple. They all gather at Baal Barith, Baal of the Covenants temple, and everybody's getting drunk and celebrating. And Gael stands up and says, uh, he starts trashing Abimelech. And he says, hey, you know what? Uh, listen, I don't know why we're following this guy. And, you know, if I was leading, I would get rid of him. He's not doing us any good. So it's one of these, he, he takes a, a moment of communal drunkenness in a pagan temple. These are God's people. And, uh, and he stands up and says, hey, why doesn't everybody follow me and I'll get rid of Abimelech. Well, there's a guy standing there who's the mayor of Shechem. His name's Zebel. He gets word out and he says, Abimelech, they're talking trash about you. They're coming after you. And so you better do something. So Abimelech comes down the next day with all of his troops and starts wiping people out. He, he drives Gale and all his family away. And then there is a massacre. Look at verse 42. On the following day, after Gael is driven out, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies. That's his, his army, his worthless and reckless fellows, etc. And set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith, Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what, have you, uh, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So Gale's gone. Everybody assumes there's no more threat to the king, so they go out to farm. And as soon as they get out in their fields, Abimelech shows up with his people and just starts killing people. The people of Shechem, who had promoted him, who funded his kingship, he just starts killing them. Well, some of them are connected to the tower of Shechem, and so they run up into this stronghold, the building that secures you. And uh, obviously what he does is he gathers those with him. He says, let's go to the stronghold. Everybody get some timber. Let's light it on fire. And he burns it and kills an additional thousand of them. And so now the place where Abram had worshipped the Lord saying, this is my gift to my people. This is the promised land. The place where they entered the promised land and Joshua and all the people worshipped the Lord is now bloodstained 
with the people of God's own blood who've killed one another. The city is barren. He pours salt in all the fields so that the fields cannot grow crops. It's completely desolate. Abimelech comes in and takes this legacy city and makes it a city of desolation, killing all the people, killing the fields. And this is the good gift of God to his people so that they may build a righteous and just society according to his laws to bring him glory and to be a light to the nations. What do the nations look on and see when this happens? Well, you can imagine it's not going to go well for Abimelech. So let's read the conclusion of the chapter beginning in verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But There was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up on the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. He's going to do the same thing he did at Shechem. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. He tries to do the exact same thing he did at Thebes. He's going to set it on fire. He's going to kill a bunch of people. But there's a lady up on top, and she has an upper millstone. An upper millstone was a a stone that would have been on the top sort of weighting down a grinder where you would grind, um, use a grinder for millstone. So it's a rock that lays up on the top of it. And so she just threw it off the top and crushed his head. And uh, he, always thinking about himself, full of pride, says, I cannot die this way uh, with her killing me. And so he has his armor bearer do a little sort of assisted suicide there I guess and stab him and and kill him and and the passage says then everybody went home and that, that was it everybody went home and verse 57 tells us that all of this happened all of this terror happened because of the evil of Abimelech killing his brothers and because of uh, Shechem's support of him thus the curse of Jotham was fulfilled. What was the curse of Jotham? That if you make a bramble, if you make bramble your king, it'll catch on fire and it'll burn everyone that touches it. There's obviously a, lead, uh, a message there about putting unrighteous people into leadership and what that does. But I don't think that's the main lesson here. What do we make of a story like this? Why are we spending our Sunday morning reading about something that happened so long ago that is uh, so hopeless on the surface? There's a few things I think we learned from this passage. Here's the first one. Evil destroys evil. This is as powerful of a picture as you will see anywhere in the Bible of how evil functions. Evil is completely selfish. Evil is utterly destructive. There, nothing flourishes ultimately under evil. Evil always 
brings death. Here's a lesson. Sin promises camaraderie. Sin promises, evil promises camaraderie. Hey, there's a fellowship and we're doing evil together. We don't have to be killing people. I'm talking about any disobedience to God. Any serving of idols, as we've talked about in the last few weeks. The idol of money, the idol of sex, the idol of power, the idol of escape and pleasure. Any idol that we pursue promises fellowship and life and unity with others. You want to, matter of fact, if you don't join in the evil, the message of the world is you're ostracized. You're an outcast. But if you really want to be in, if you really want to be connected, if you really want to have life, then you must join those who disobey God and serve idols. Evil promises security, fellowship, unity. For those who will disregard God and his commands, look at the fruit of leaving God and serving idols in company with others. Look at the fruit. It is utter destruction. Dale Davis writes, Judges 9 teaches us something very important. There is no fellowship in evil. Evil has no lasting cohesion. You see that here. Nothing's cohesive. Everything is unraveled. It's chaos. That's the nature of evil. It does not, evil does not care for its own. It only uses its own. You can see this in living color in Revelation 17, which depicts the Antichrist and his cronies, how they will hate and consume the very anti-God culture they had nourished. The Antichrist and his cronies build an anti-God culture and then consume it. This is how evil works. Evil is of, of its very nature. It cannibalizes. It eats itself. It's destructive. Let this be a warning to us. Temptation can look so appealing. There can appear to be so much freedom in sin. So much freedom. But Judges teaches freedom always leads to bondage. Sin always leads, rather, sin always leads to being trapped. Sin always leads to enslavement where sin is your master. Sin always promises unity. Well, what happened? We were all in the temple together saying, yes, King Abimelech. We were all celebrating and anointing him, our ruler. There was so much hope at the beginning of the chapter from these evil cohorts. But what happened? Everyone dies, and the city does not flourish but becomes absolutely desolate where even the ground cannot produce life. It's a warning to us about the nature of evil, and and therefore this chapter is a gift. It's kind of dark. Why are we talking about people dying and die? There's so much death and destruction. and Why do we need to think about that? This is a gift because this chapter shows us the fruit of the path of evil where it always leads. Oh, it may not lead there today. He served three years with no problem. It's destructive. Secondly, we learn that God judges evil. Evil destroys evil, and God judges evil. You know, back at verse 23 and 24 of the chapter, 
says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously, treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands. The, the passage tells us what's going on. It's not just a bunch of wild people doing bad stuff. It's ultimately, this is all about God bringing judgment. Verse 57, God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham. So this is a passage about God judging evil. God's never mentioned by covenant name in chapter 9, Yahweh, the Lord. He is never mentioned by name. And so it can appear that he's absent. He's silent but he's not absent. He is at work judging evil. Sometimes God's work is behind the scenes. Sometimes God is working for, uh, for judgment, allowing people to go their own way, allowing their evil desires to blossom so that judgment comes. The people of Shechem have denied God. They're in covenant with Baal. But and we can see God's hand using Abimelech and Shechem against each other to bring judgment. God is bringing judgment. God's not absent in this passage at all. And we, we get those two little passages, 20, 23, 24, 56, 57. Those little verses, just tiny verses in the passage tell us, hey, you're not hearing God's name mentioned, but his covenant name anyway, Yahweh. But this is what he's doing. He is judging evil. Of this passage, Tim Keller writes, God in his judgment uses the tools of human rebellion against those who rebel. God will use human rebellion to bring judgment upon human rebellion. While everyone is acting freely, doing what they want to do in their hearts, grabbing for power, yes, they're freely grabbing for power, and yet God is using that because God is sovereign over evil. This is important to know as well. We're, we're, not, we're not free to do whatever we want and there is no judgment, but God always brings judgment. And this passage really points to the greater judgment to come. Judgment is sure, and chapters like this remind us of the danger of ignoring God, the danger of forgetting God. If you'll remember, the whole passage started, the whole setup for the passage included these words and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side that's where it started 833 it started with yes we know of God we know God we've experienced God but we're forgetting him and it ends with everybody's dead It's a warning to us, the danger of forgetting the Lord, the danger of drifting, the danger of idolatry, the danger of disobedience, the danger of rebellion. And friends, these warnings are gracious. They are gifts. It is God serving us up a gift today to say, consider where evil leads. Consider where rebellion leads. I know nobody in the room worships Baal of the covenant, but we've just spent seven weeks on various idols that we do run to. And so running to those idols leads somewhere. And this passage shows us. In his commentary on Judges, Barry Webb said the following of this passage. He said, the story of Abimelech does not make pleasant reading, but like all other parts of scripture, it's there for our good. It is 
it, it, in its own unique way, it bears witness to the precision of divine judgment. God will make a full end. There will be no unfinished business with him. It warns us not to test God by choosing evil. It should make us deeply thankful to God for having mercy on us and rouse us to renewed prayer for those we love who continue to defy him that we may not visit on, that he may not visit on them the terrible retribution they deserve. If you're a Christian here today, it calls us to remember and to pray for those who aren't and who are headed this direction. If you're a Christian here today, it calls us as well to check our own hearts, to check our own hearts. Well, the last thing, and I've got to go out of the passage for this, but the last thing is that God is faithful. Evil destroys evil. God judges evil. But God is faithful. God is merciful. Look at chapter 10. I don't have this on a slide. The very next verse after all of this, chapter 10, and after Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Puah. So after all of this, God raises up someone to deliver them, Tola. Now here's the interesting thing. What does Tola deliver them from? There's no nation ruling over them. There's no nation enslaving them. That's what always happens. What does he deliver them from? He delivers them from themselves. A deliverer came to deliver them from themselves, from their own sin, their own evil. God never abandons his people. God's people need a leader, a deliverer, who will not only save us from the enemies on the outside, but will save us from the enemies on the inside. We need God to save us not only from outside challenges, but from our own idolatries. That's what this is about. He comes and saves them from their own idolatry, from their own rebellion, their own foolishness, their own deception. And that points to the one, the God-man, the king of kings, Jesus, who comes to bring the kingdom of God and to rescue us from ourselves. I mean, think about this today. How has God saved you from yourself? We don't have the time to spend a lot of time thinking about this, but sometime this week, just pause. If you're a Christian, just pause and say, where would I be today if God didn't intervene and rescue me from me? One of the greatest problems of the evangelical church today is all of the energy and hype about all the bad enemies out there that are against the church. This passage tells us that frequently the greatest enemy to the people of God is the people of God. The greatest challenge to the church today is not the right wing. It's not the left wing. It's the church we who turn from God Almighty, the God who has made covenant with us and look to a thousand other idols, this is the greatest challenge to our demise. I don't care right or left, whoever comes and puts pressure on the church, the church will thrive and survive. That's the history. Nobody can vanquish the church. Nobody can put down and snuff out the people of God. Persecution only leads to flourishing among the people of God. That's the story of history. What destroys the people of God is chapter 9 of the book of Judges. This is what eats the church up. Now, I'm not saying there's no threats on the outside to the church in these days. I'm not foolish. But I'm saying the greatest threat is us. As I, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, or I can't remember who, but somebody said, we have met the enemy, and the enemy is 
us. What has God saved you from? God has been gracious to us. But this story shows that we must not presume, presume upon the grace of God. In fact, the, the, the grace of God should lead us to repentance. Let me ask you, where do you need to hear God's warning? This passage is a warning. Where do you need to hear God's warning to you today on drift in your soul? Where are you drifting? Where are you drifting? Yeah, I know about God, but it's, he's not as alive to me as he was uh, before. Uh, he's not as real to me. He's not influencing my choices. He's not influencing my friendships, my work, my habits. He's not influencing my private life like he used to. And where are you drifting today? This passage not only calls us to look at where we're drifting, but where do we need to hear God's grace for return? Because after all this mess, God raised up Tola to rescue his people. Mercy is for all. So where do you need to be reminded of the mercy of God to pull you out of whatever you're trapped in today? We find the warning of sin and the promise of mercy most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, we look and we say sin is far worse than we knew. A chapter like this shows us how bad evil is. The cross says evil is so, so indescribably, I don't know, bad that God himself had to take human form and become a man and pay for our sins, Jesus on the cross, taking them upon himself, enduring the punishment for our sins. And God's mercy is so great that God who will judge evil became man to receive the judgment for our evil himself. That's the mercy of God. We see a warning of the evil that's around us and tempts us in our flesh today. We see a warning of that in the cross. We, we see how serious evil is, but we also see how glorious the Savior's mercy is. That's why the cross is the center of our lives. That's why we center our lives on the work of Jesus in the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and in his rule and in his reign. Yes, evil will destroy evil, but for those who are in Christ, evil will not destroy us. We have received everlasting life. God judges evil. There will be a final judgment. But if you are a believer in Jesus, your judgment moved from the future to the past because your judgment was upon Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where the judgment for your sin took place. And the moment you receive him by faith, you are declared righteous. This is unbelievably good news. God is faithful. If you find yourself trapped today, God delivers. Let's look to him for deliverance. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.